Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White, and in this episode, I speak with special guest David Kern. Hi, David. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's just, it's great to have you here. Uh, if you're a longtime Forma subscriber or a listener to this podcast or some of the others available from the Circe Institute, you recognize David Kern as the voice of the people. And, uh, <laughs> I like that. I'm uh, the go reading that. people, the literary people, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> David Kern is our fearless leader over here at Forma Journal, uh, and uh, he's the host of the Daily Poem and the creator and host of the Circe Institute Close Reads Podcast Network, the editor-in-chief of Forma Journal, and the vice president of Integrated Resources for the Circe Institute. And he and his family live in Concord, North Carolina, the bustling metropolis. Uh, they did just shut down downtown. So did they it's really? a big city now. There's construction in, on Main Street or Union Street. So it's like be living in a big city now. We might as well be living in Austin. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's funny. I just, why do you picked Austin out of all of the cities? Bad that traffic. You picked. They have traffic, okay. traffic problems. I know. That, I I, I, back from as soon as I said that, I thought that was an interesting choice, but. <laughs> I know. So my challenge in this particular podcast, David and I talk to each other a lot. Uh, my challenge is going to be sticking to the subject and not just wandering. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Introduce the subject. The I won't woods. talk about traffic anymore. Okay, no more talk of Austin, which is one of my favorite cities too. And I assume that that's where that was going. Um, but I, I did invite you here today, David, to have a conversation about a really exciting new project uh, that you've been spearheading. Uh, the new book release from Circe Institute Publishing, 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late. Uh, so first and foremost, we have all been wondering, and if this is the first that you've heard of the book, you are probably wondering right exactly now, why the ominous title? What does it mean? And how will we know when it is too late? Well, you'll be dead. Okay. And so you won't be able to keep memorizing. Uh, short of being dead, first your brain will probably stop working properly. Uh, that happens to us each in varying degrees. Um, for example, <laughs> my eight-year-old is much better at memorizing than I am, and I'm in my 30s. So it, to me, is just a foreshadowing of the dark days ahead. Um, it's meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek, of course. You know, It's meant to just kind of be fun. It's, it's meant to allude to the fact that it's true that we only have so much time to be on this earth, but we also only have so much space that we can fill our head with good things, right? We, our heads only have so much space, if you will. And so part of, part of it is it's a time thing. You know, we really only do have so much time. And so we're kind of playing with that. It's meant, it's like I said, it's meant to be tongue in cheek, but there's also, <clears throat> I don't know if there's literally only so much space in our brains. 
I'm sure someone could actually speak to that. But in reality, in terms of what we can actually process and contemplate, there's only so much space that we have. And so why not fill it with good things that are worth remembering, that are worth keeping there, and that are worth going back to, as opposed to you know things that aren't. So, so hopefully all these poems fulfill that sort of that goal of filling our head with things that are worth filling it with. Well, it also broadens your target audience because death is a hundred percent coming for us all. So anybody, literally anybody. This book is for anybody who's alive, but is going to die. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what about Bob, right? It's like that kid. You've seen that movie, right? I have indeed. The little kid. We're going to die. We're all going to die. And Bill Murray just kind of looks at him. So, in this case, I'm that kid who is saying, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not really that dark, but I am, I have had fun kind of playing, playing it up a little bit. So, right. You know, so if you are not, dead, it's just my sense of you. humor, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that. That should be the new like tagline for the marketing. Thank you. Just you are not dead. Yeah. You are not dead. This book is for this you. This book is for you. Yeah. I remember vividly the moment it dawned on me that my children were capable of memorizing anything and it should be good Mm. things to your point. And it was uh, when I was researching homeschooling, when my oldest was, I don't know, four or five years old and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for school. And um, I had read about classical education and I was like, I'm all in, I love this, but they're gonna have to like memorize all of these things. And I was so intimidated by that. And, and then I remember Jack just like skipping along down the street when we were on a walk, just quoting Finding Nemo, like the entire movie, like entire scenes from the movie. And I was like, mm. oh, we're going to be fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. Kids yeah, they are do it anyway. Of learning yeah. might as well yeah. be goodness, truth, and beauty. So yeah. tell yeah. us about the origins of the book. How did the idea germinate and come to fruition? As like a gardening metaphor that I just did. <laughs> I'm Must kind be of a poet. poet so. Yeah, exactly. Um, where did the idea, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I don't really remember exactly where it came from, but I remember, I remember being at our summer Institute retreat actually and talking to some people about it and pitching the idea. Like I remember Andrew Pudua was there at lunch. I think you were there. Um, a couple other people. This was like Last 13 year. months ago yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd had the idea in my head for all these different anthologies but the anthologies that were, uh, you know, you get anthologies sometimes where the poems are selected because, well, obviously because they're by the same poet, right? Like you might have the best of Walt Whitman or something. And then sometimes you have anthologies that are built around, say, um, summer poems or just the seasons or romance poems or something like that. So there's a theme to them. And so I was thinking, you know, are, is the, like in a way that's kind of impractical. Hmm. Like, if it's during the summer, I might go read that, but it's much harder to take an anthology built around a theme and build it into your everyday life, like your sort of your literary life, I guess, you know? Um, and so then I started thinking that one of the things that people are always trying to, always talking about, especially people who value poetry and poets is the idea of memorizing. And then I was thinking, it's too bad that there's not an anthology that is geared specifically towards, towards helping you memorize like there's poems that are selected because they're memorizable um whether it's because the form is has things that are good for grasping onto you know like the sort of handheld you know handholds or something that is not a gardening metaphor um and <laughs> or or you know because they're um 
just beautiful and so they are worth keeping in your head so that's you know i was thinking let's you know can we create an anthology that's just built around that concept that can help people specifically memorize so every poem in the book then has been chosen for that purpose um so i so i threw the idea out there to a couple people at lunch and they seem to like it so we, we kind of ran with it and um talked to yeah talked to different poets who i've gotten to know over the years and um once people started saying yeah that sounds like a great idea like once you had poets like james matthew wilson or morris manning or even um you know, someone who's a critic like Anthony Esselin and people like that started saying, Sally Thomas was another one who started saying, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. That's really interesting. Once they started saying they're in, that's when it really started to take off and started to sort of cohere. Hmm. So tell us about the format of the book. How, how could such a book help us memorize poetry? What, what should people be looking for? Well, okay. So to be fair, when I set out to sort of build the structure and was talking to you all, you know, and you contributed as well. So I was talking to all the contributors about the poems and whatnot. I was sort of thinking like, if I was trying to add more memorization to my life, which I am, and it's something that I'm not good at, like I'm actually not good at, like I'll get random pieces of information from movies or sports or something, and I'll be able to remember them for a long time. But I'm actually pretty bad at memorizing a poem. I have a lot. It takes a lot of work for me. So I was thinking, if I'm going to put the time in, which a lot of people want to do, they value it, so they want to put the time in. Then I need it to be something that is actually um, doable. You know, something hmm. attackable. Hmm. So, um, so the idea was to create to get poems that weren't too long, that are, you know, not too many of them. Thirty seems like you know spend a couple of years with it and you can memorize 30 poems. Mm-hmm. We don't want to do a hundred poems. We also didn't want it to be too slight and do 10. Like we want it to be a challenge, but also, you know, just be achievable. And so you were asking about the structure of the book. So then what we did is we looked for poems that fit that bill. But then we, but then I was thinking it can't just be the poem. Like, yeah, that's an, an anthology is just a list of poems. That's fine. But can we, can we have commentary on those poems that are contemplations based on why the poem is memorizable hmm. so it should it should help sort of unlock what's going on in the poem but not in a way that gives everything gives gives everything away because if you're going to memorize a poem the point is you want to retain some of the mystery in memorizing it mm-hmm. because if it's going to be in your head for a long, long time and you're going to keep coming back to it that's when the mysteries get unlocked so we didn't want to have commentary that just says this is the whole poem you don't need to spend any time with it now because you, we've unlocked all the secrets. We wanted the essays to be contemplations that showed this is what the poet is doing here with form. This is what they're doing with the themes. This is how these things connect. And this is how, these are some tips for memorizing it. So if you notice this thing about it, that's a thing to help you, give you a tip or something to grab onto for your brain to grab onto as you're memorizing it. So every poem, there's 30 poems. And then that means there's also 30 brief essays. They're around 1,500 words each. So they're, you can read them in one sitting easily. It takes about what, 10, 15 minutes to read them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go back to them and, you know, we left big margins so you can write in the margins and all that sort of stuff to, to help, to, to help give yourself the, you know, some structure to your, to your memorizing. Well, it's also along with, with all of that practical help and uh, the kind of rich fodder for contemplation. It's also just a beautiful book, just some amazing <laughs> yeah. illustrations. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so each section has a 
well, the book's divided up by the poets themselves. So some poets, there's one poem, some poets, there's multiple. So like Shakespeare and Homer and Frost, for example, these like the ones that are everybody accepts are the great, the greats. There's multiple poems by them. So we divided the book up by, by the author in alphabetical order. And then with that, we have the, the poems and the reflections, but we also have a little biographical section for a little bit of background. And then we have got these great lino cuts. They're black and white, awesome lino cuts that Kirsty Rafato, who works for us here at Cersei, she's an artist and she made these, you know, each of them by hand. And then we scan them and put them into the book. And so we wanted, yeah, we wanted to add a little bit of, you know, make it more interesting visually, but also, you know, the images have a sort of poetry about them Mm -hmm. in and of themselves. We chose, you know, like, we don't want to choose just the the images that everybody knows for all of them. because. So, so sometimes you'll get like, I think Frost is really young, whereas most people think of him as being a white-haired 75-year-old guy or whatever. I don't know if he actually lived to be 75 exactly, but you get the point. So he's, he's young. And then like even the Shakespeare one and the John Donne one are, you know, kind of not ones you're going to see all the time. The Wendell Berry one is one of my favorites. He's like in his 40s, whereas most people think of him as, as you know, 75 or 80. 75-year-old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they, it turns out it takes most poets you think of as old takes men or long time very young old, men. Right? Yeah. You're either John Keats and you die when you're 24 or you live to be very old and that's how people think of you. There's not very not very many famous middle-aged no, poets. Feeling a little <laughs> bit existential. Because so. <laughs> they're just slaving away on their work during that time. No, no actually, time to get famous. I love that about the book. I, you know, you, probably, you know this about me, David. I think books and food should be beautiful because that's those are the good things of life and they should yeah. look as good as they feel and nourish us and all that. So that's one of my favorite things about it. And I love how Kirstie interpreted the poets, like their eyes just have this quality, the, yeah. the way their eyebrows, the expression on their faces, the, the thick and thin yeah. lines, yeah. like they're just really incredible interpretations of, of the poets in the poems, uh, just as the commentary. Yeah, she deserves a ton of credit. Mm-hmm. It would not be the same book without without the illustrations. I mean, we could have found... We knew from the beginning we wanted to have some images of them. And we we talked about all kinds of different scenarios. You know, you can you can find images online. There's paintings of some of them or photographs. And we could have done the full page versions of that. But the illustrations like this have... They have, as you said, a kind of an interpretive element to them. And they just, they're just different. They're, un, they're unusual for this sort of thing. And that makes them really compelling. So... Um, some of them are like, because they're a lino cut, they're slightly, you know, off center a little bit. Like they're slightly, you know, to one o'clock on the slightly diagonal or just kind of, they don't, they don't fit right in the center of the page, which I kind of enjoy the, the, the rough edges of that. I think there's some on Amazon too, but if you go to our website, if you go to starseeinstitute.com slash 30 poems, there are a few of these illustrations are actually on the site so you can see them. And I think we've also posted some to social media as well. So I should, we should actually do a video of Kirsty talking about what she was doing with some of these. That'd be really cool. That's a great idea. You should definitely oh, yeah. do that. I'm, I'm just, I'm a huge fan. So usually when I do these interviews, I send the questions on ahead of time to people. But I didn't do that today. Because one of my favorite things about conversations with David is how he thinks on his feet. I like that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw one at you and see what you say here. Um, Mm -hmm. why, why is memorizing poetry an important discipline? Like what happens to us when we memorize poetry versus when we don't? And 
I mean, you could go with either the memorization piece or, or specifically oriented towards poetry. I'd like to hear what you think about why it matters, not just to memorize, but to memorize poetry. Well, the first thing I feel like I should say is, the, for the first thing my brain wants to think about <laughs> is that the, there's lots of things you can memorize that are valuable that are other than poetry too. It's not, this book is not the suggestion that the best thing or the only thing or the most important thing necessarily is to memorize poetry. You have to know where your um, keys are and like your phone number. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know about either of those things. Do you things, know where your keys are right now? Um, yeah, they're right here. They're right on the desk. <laughs> I wasn't sure though. I did have to look. Um, but I mean, you know, there, you can, there's value in memorizing historical facts or um, sports stats or, you know, there's value in memorizing all kinds of things. Um, but the, the specific value in memorizing poetry is that I think there is truly nurturing, life-changing value in just memorizing things that are beautiful. Um, you talked about how food, you know, food and books should be beautiful. I think there's just value in beautiful things and surrounding ourselves with beautiful things. I mean, it's kind of like we, you know, we value, you know, a rose garden, right. Or, or, uh, you know, to go to the food metaphor, you know, you go to a restaurant and someone plates something and it's really beautiful and there's just kind of takes your breath away. Or you watch a movie, a movie with a beautiful scene or you read prose that's, you know, that moves you. Beauty is, it's important. And so poetry is one of the ways to fill our minds with beautiful things in a way that also has form and structure and gives you a lot to think about for a long time. A great poem is great, is worth memorizing, not because once you have it memorized, you can recite it, but because once you have it in your head, you can contemplate it. Mm -hmm. um, and you can contemplate it over long periods of time. And the more you contemplate it, the more it sort of opens itself up, the more it sort of, you know, like if you think about it like a garden, the more the bush, the rosebush flowers, right? Um, over, over time. And then sometimes it goes dormant and then it comes back and the flowers are different. Um, although the rosebush at my house is completely dead. So, you know. That's really that's sad. A, I that's, really like that rosebush. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna have to have a whole different conversation about that though. I guess so. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I think having having things in our minds to contemplate over long periods of time that are beautiful, I think is important. I wrote about it a little bit in the preface to the book. Um, you know, said so like, we can go online and queue up a poem anytime. Mm -hmm. So we don't memorize it to queue up the poem. Like memorizing poetry is not so that when we're at a dinner party, you can queue up the poem and impress people that you have poetry in your brain. Sure, that's a great side effect. You know, right. it's, you know, sometimes people want to talk about poetry and if you can just pull it up, there's value in that. But it's what it's really about is being able to have something beautiful in your mind that's there for a long time that can change you and that you can spend time with and you can come back to. Um, and sure, some poems are going to be more rooted there than others. Mm -hmm. Some you're going to forget over time. They're not going to be as meaningful to you. Um, but then there might be a turn of phrase in it that sticks with you for a long time. And that turn of phrase is worth having there that that couplet or that line or even just that stands or that you know the two words put together the image or something that you know the the idea that, that can stick with you forever is uh, and you never know when you're gonna need it right when it can be meaningful or valuable to you
I really, I love what you're, I think the thing that's standing out to me the most, I do like the gardening metaphor when it comes to poetry, because there are so many parallels, um, is that the idea of dormancy and coming back to life. And I'm thinking specifically about a, a personal situation. A few years ago, we, our family went through a pretty hard thing when we had to forgive somebody for a very grievous offense. And I kept thinking during that time, the quality of mercy is not strained. It just came alive. Like there was this sense in which that Portia's speech in the Merchant of Venice about the value of mercy and her, uh, and the context for that within the play, when she is begging somebody who is demanding justice, but really using justice as revenge to have mercy. She's begging this, she's, she's begging the Shylock to do that and he won't. And that, the, the speech is very famous. It's very beautiful. Um, but it was dormant, right? It's not something you think about every day, but because it was enough in my mind that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't perfectly, I mean, even now I can't quote it, um, all the way, Yeah, but it's in the book and I can't quote it. (laughs) Yes. But it's that sense of dormancy and the coming alive when you need it. And there's something about the beauty and the precision and the order of poetry that ennobles the ordinary experiences of life and, and kind of makes them come alive. Um, when we need them, you know, like when we're pulling weeds yeah. during Lent and you're thinking about your sins or whatever. And, and there's this sense of that's what poetry in many ways does. It creates, it, it's a metaphor for the deeper things of life. And so when you're in those deeper things of life, whatever you memorize can, can be available for you. I like that dormancy idea a lot. Yeah. In the preface, um, I read about, I wrote, I shared a quote by Catherine Robson. I don't know if you've heard of her book, Heartbeats, Everyday Life and the Memorized Poem. No. Um, it's worth checking out. But she says, if we do not learn by heart, the heart does not feel the rhythms of poetry as echoes or variations of its own insistent beat. And so I was, th- I was thinking a lot while working on the book about how when we memorize, like in the book, I put it at to memorize is to inhabit and be inhabited by that which is transcendent. And so I, I kept thinking about, had that, that idea in my head and I kept thinking about the sort of awe-inspiring notion that you can have Shakespeare or Dickinson or Rena Aspiat or T.S. Eliot like in, as a part of you. Mm-hmm. Like that their words and their language and the, the ideas and the images that they're, they're creating can, can actually like invade us, you know? <laughs> Inhabit us and like help us be different people. And, uh, and plus it's like a collection point for tradition <laughs> and huh. like, Go on. I think that's an, Love that. well, I think for centuries that's people valued memorization because it was, you were passing on something meaningful. It wasn't, it was, there was something collective and bigger than just yourself about it. So on the one hand, there is the personal, but there's also the, the grander social idea that, I mean, think about it. Like Homer was passed on through the oral tradition, right? So people were memorizing stories and passing them on. Um, Shakespeare was performed. So people were memorizing lines and passing those lines on to the audience. That speech you just talked about, that wasn't printed and given to people to just buy in the local bookshop. They had to go to the show and hear someone's, someone who had memorized it and then interpreted it on the stage. Sure, with a little help from the actual playwright. <laughs> but it was still memorization was how culture was passed on. And although we have books now, 
and, and they're easy to come by. And we can even find them on our devices in many cases. I think that when we memorize them and we memorize them together with other people, say our children or students in our classrooms, what we're doing is we're helping pass on the value of the, of the tradition itself, not just the value of the poem or the value of memorization, but the value of the tradition of literature, the value of tra the, tra the tradition of the literary arts themselves. And we're emphasizing our cultural need for them. And so that's a big part of why I think, you know, my, my hope is that a book like this can play a small part in that, but books of poetry of all kinds are so important. Poetry is not a huge part of our culture right now. I think that's going to wax and wane throughout the rest of eternity, like, or the rest of time, that the earth is still around. Um, I think that the value of poetry is going to wax and wane. But I think that without, even though it's not a huge part of it, it's still a sustaining heartbeat or maybe it's sustaining organ. Like what's an, what's an organ that keeps someone alive, but it's not necessarily the one we talk about all the time. <laughs> I think literature, although it's maybe not super popular, po poetry in particular, is not super popular. That it exists is crucial mm -hmm. to to the sustenance of a culture. Mm -hmm. And then it's passed down, right within yeah. within the context of trusted relationships. I love the idea of memorizing a lot of these poems with our kids. You know, a lot of our audience, uh, our classroom teachers, homeschooling parents, uh, school administrators, um, and and a book. A book like this gives a framework, a language for, and, and some very practical ideas in specific poems uh, for memorizing. What do you think about, you know, as I was flipping through the book, um, flipping through, carefully reading this amazing <laughs> book, um, <laughs> like a lot, there's a lot of the uh, reflections really are geared more towards adults, um, like more, more towards like abstract reasoning. What would you say about, uh, you know, because a lot of these books are, or excuse me, a lot of these poems um, have just a great, great depth to them. Is it still worth memorizing for children, you, these, these kinds of poems? I think it's a hilarious misconception that when I first read a poem, I'm going to know more about it than my kid. <laughs> I think that like, if I read a poem that's complex with my eight-year-old, I've got more background in literature to know what to look for. Mm. Like, I've got more, I've, I've acquired more knowledge over the years just from practice. So I know more what to look for. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to see things that I don't see. And it doesn't mean that what I see is inherently more valuable than what he sees, even if the poem is really complex. And it doesn't mean that either of us are actually going to get to the bottom of what the poem is actually saying. And that's why, that's why we memorize, though. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, because we memorize so that it can be something we contemplate for a long time. Like if my eight-year-old memorizes, um, let me just open to one randomly, if he memorizes Love 3 by George Herbert, which is actually a very memorizable poem for a young kid, mm -hmm. then he's going to have that in his... First of all, it's going to be easier for him to memorize than it is for me. And second, he's going to have that in his head forever. To some degree. Like he might have to go, you know, we'll want to go back and brush up on it, you know, so to speak. But he's going to have that in his head and he's gonna, it's going to come back to him and he's going to be contemplating it. He's going to be thinking about it. And he's going to be able to spend years discovering 
that poem and what and and that poem's going to spend years like unfurling itself i don't know right. you know uh, revealing its hidden mysteries or something so to start that when they're young is going to help children get a head start on getting those skills or those that practice that i was describing earlier i've had practice but i you, you have to start when you're younger to get years of practice. And the earlier you start, the more practice you're going to have over the years, even if you can't name all the things that you're doing. So while the essays are geared maybe more towards the adult or the teacher, um, and maybe an eight-year-old's not going to read them, um, I think they definitely could be read by a high schooler. But the, um, by memorizing the poem and thinking about it, it's going to teach the kids how to think about poetry. Yeah, That's the best way to learn how to think about poetry. That's a better way to think about poetry than me saying here's some ways to read poetry. The first thing you have to do is actually be around poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really care that much if they get all the depth of the poems um, because when I first read a poem, unless it's a very simple poem or a very short poem or whatever, I don't know. Even a mediocre poem, I have to spend a decent amount of time with to have any idea what it's really doing. Um, if I mean, there are bad poems and right away you can tell yes. this po- this there's not a lot of complexity to this. This person is not a great poet or wasn't when this moment when they wrote this poem was not their highest achievement. (laughs) Um, Let's put it that way. But that's why you spend time with them. And when you spend time with them, the poet teaches you, the poem will teach you how to think about itself and it will teach you how to think about poetry in general. Hmm. And so that's why kids should should read them. That was a little long-winded. I was doing some thinking on my feet while I was talking. (laughs) No, I think that I really like what you said about the poem, Will teach you how to read it, which goes back to your earlier point that you made, David, that the longer, the, the more time you spend with a poem, the more it kind of gives up its secrets, right? It gives mm-hmm. up its soul. And, and as readers and memorizers, we bring ourselves to a poem and um, we bring our own experiences, our own biases, our own feelings and you know, yeah. moods or whatever. Um, yeah. and, and that interaction, that's why we reread. That's right. That interaction between a poem and the reader is one of the, my most favorite things about poetry because what yeah. poetry is by nature, most of the time poetry is ambiguous. It leaves room for interpretation. There's negative space. Right. And right. this conversation you have, I have, have had before um, about the purpose of poetry. One of the reasons that a po- that poetry even exists is for the sake of that negative space that leaves room for the reader to come at it and have an experience with it. And that's not mm-hmm. true for every form of writing. Right. Like there, right, yeah. you can read an essay wrong and get the wrong thing out of it, and you just read the whole thing wrong. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But with a yeah. poem, there's a little more room for the mystery of an interaction. It's almost like making a friend or forming a relationship. And I love that yeah. about poetry, like a lot. Yeah, the relationship thing is a really apt metaphor, I think. I, I think that there is something where spending time with... <laughs> yeah, spending time with a poem is like being married or being in a friendship or something like... It's true. The idea, you know, you learn how to be friends with people like everybody sort of being friends with you is different than being friends with Graham Pittman. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like 
in a, in a way, like I don't want to over put too fine a point on it, but like in a way, I didn't actually know how to be married to my wife when I first got married. And she kind of had to teach me that. And that's by like, in a way it's like by revealing herself to me, like, like me getting to know her. Um, and she gets, you know, you get to know someone in that and they are revealing the things that motivate them, the things that drive them, the things they love, the things they dislike, all that sort of thing. And that's how you learn to be in a relationship with that person. The more, as they reveal themselves and you reveal yourself to them, you figure out a way to, 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 have, a, to have a relationship that's healthy, hopefully. Um, and I think in some ways, that's kind of how poetry is. It's revealing, you know, it's revealing itself as you spend time with it and over the years. I think probably when I go back to these poems in 10 years, like say I pay, say this book sits dormant on my shelf for a few years <laughs> and I go back to it and I start looking at some of the poems, the experiences that I had with the, when I was writing the reflections on the, the ones that I wrote in this book, I'm probably going to feel differently about them and they're going to reveal things to, my, to me. And my, I might not even agree with what some bit of what I wrote on, on say a Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem or something like that. So, but that's the brilliant thing about poetry. That's the fun thing about it. And hopefully people will come to this book and be able to have arguments with the things that we're writing in our contemplations. <laughs> right. I hope so. I hope I get some emails. Like I didn't yeah. see that at all. You are a crazy or, person. Yeah, Heidi. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I get those emails like all the time. You're Can I ask you a question? Person, right? Yeah. What's your, um, of the ones that you didn't write, what's your, what poems like have stood out the most to you that from, that maybe you didn't know you, what you thought about them before or you were unfamiliar or, I'm just curious. Um, <laughs> You're like a test case. <laughs> so, oh, the, I like this meta thing that's happening. The interviewee becomes the <laughs> Um I think that, so I'd never read, right? I know. I'd never read the Dana Goya poem, Words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine. Yeah, that's a group. Oh, man. Uh, Christine Perrin's comment. So, two different experiences with Christine's essays here. Um, I'd never read the Dana Goya poem. And so, and her essay really opened it up. I didn't spend any time contemplating the poem. I just read the poem then I read the essay. Um, And it was, I mean, her reflections are lovely. The next one that I want to comment on is her, her reflection on those winter Sundays, which is one of my favorite poems. That's probably my top 10 poems ever. And she saw some things in that poem that I had never thought of before. And I've thought about Mm -hmm. that poem for years. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you said earlier about memorizing poems with people, which I love that idea. And I hope people do that. I hope that uh, you know, book clubs get together, um, online communities form something that's let's all memorize these poems together because if you have a relationship with a poem and then you add another person's relationship with that poem and create a conversation about that, that is special, like really Mm -hmm. special. Yeah. And I think talking about stories and poetry and thing writing is one of, I mean, one of the most amazing ways to create a friendship. Um, because yeah. you're not just, yeah. you're talking, whenever you're talking about a book or a poem, you're talking about yourself, even if you're hiding it or cloaking it in some way. And then if you're the kind of person who pays attention to that, then that enters into the relationship with the person that you're talking about the book with or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and so I kind of felt that a little bit reading Christine's reflections um, 
on those winter Sundays. How about back the same question back at you? Also, your essay on preludes is really, really just lovely. I loved it. And <laughs> I know that's not what you were fishing for, but I, I just, I remember editing it before it went into the book and was like, David Kern, ladies and gentlemen. So read that one. I think the poem, well, okay. So of the ones that I wrote, the po- the one that um, I had the hardest time with. Can and I guess? That, uh, yeah. Kenyon. No, actually, no, no. Oh, um, why is that the, the worst one that I wrote? No, that's um, not what I meant at all. It's because it's a simple <laughs> poem. So, well, I spent a lot of time thinking about that poem. Uh-huh. So I was anticipating writing about that one. The one that I was not sure that I, I was kind of dreading having to write about was Wallace Stevens, The House Was Quiet and the World Was Calm. Huh. And so that one was the one that I had to spend a lot of time with. And in some ways, it's sort of like, you know, in, in spending a lot of time with it. I don't want to say that I have like the secret to it, but it, it un, I felt huh. like I, I knew it in a way that I never had before. I, there's lots that I don't understand about that. My poem, my um, essay on it might be complete nonsense, but I feel like I have a better sense of it than I did. Uh, one of the ones that for me was really uh, great was um, the Richard Wilbur poem, Love Calls Us to the mm-hmm. Things of the World, which was... to me has always been a fascinating poem, but a complete mystery. And James Matthew Wilson's essay James, on it, yeah. it's called All That Is Clear and Orderly, really helped me understand that poem. And James Matthew Wilson is an incredible poet himself and uh, it did a wonderful job on, on, you know, sort of opening that one up and helping, helping me understand it. So um, that's probably one of the ones that I would say is um, where I feel like I, I feel like I, I feel differently about it than I did before. Um, we had a, we have one in here by Wendell Berry, which is a poem that I didn't, didn't know a lot about before we did me this book. Me neither. I loved it. Yeah, I'd never read it before. Ever. Oh man, that is a beautiful poem. Yeah, it's called Early in the Year by My Friend's Gift. It's one of his Sabbath poems. And Jeffrey Bilbrow wrote a lovely uh, reflection on that one. Jeffrey Bilbrow wrote a lovely reflection. There's a lot of... Right, there was uh, lure sounds. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, So that's one I definitely would say check out. Um, I mean, I'm really proud of, of the work that everyone did. I actually feel... Um, I was really nervous about the the selections, not because I felt like they weren't good, but you just kind of hope that they all sort of cohere. And um, we we had a list of hundreds of poems that we narrowed down. You know, we had a number of poets and and scholars who helped us. You know, help to nominate poems and then whittle it down. And one of my fears, I don't know, my anxieties about the book was was the ones that we ended up choosing going to have feel like they all sort of belong together. Um, cause it's one thing for them to say that they're all memorizable and that's, that's all well and good. That's valuable, but it's also good if somehow they feel like they belong in the same book. And I think they do. I, I, and I'm, that's one of the things that I'm really glad about. Um, and we had, we tried to have a good mix of contemporary with classic poems, you know, some Shakespeare and plays and sonnets and then Homer and some, some ancient stuff as well as, you know, people who are, the essentials, the frosts and the Dickinsons and so forth. And then people who are living now. So, um, did you see any threads of connection between as, as you were putting this together? I know that we just did it, um, alphabetically, which was a great idea. Um, but as you looked at these 30 poems and knowing the people who were on the panel, who voted for these poems and all that, was there, any kind of threads of connection going through 
the majority of these poems that you noticed? Through, well, you mean like themes? Mm, Yeah. Anything that you were like, oh, I thought this was going to be a random collection of poems, but they're kind of joined by a, a, a united front in some way or united. Okay. So I was thinking about this a little bit recently. I think that almost this might just be because this is a common thing in poetry itself. I think a lot of poetry is about empathy. Hmm. A lot of poetry is about being a poet. And a lot of poetry is about what you do when the world around you is not what you hoped it would be. Um, And I think those three things are pretty tied together. And so I think those three threads run through almost all of these poems, those three themes, Um, both sort of the pursuit of empathy um, and then at times even being empathetic towards other people. Um, But then also trying to express, you know, some sort of steadfastness in the face of a world that when everything seems to be collapsing around you. And oftentimes um, what people do who are poets when that's happening is they turn to poetry. And so that's sometimes when poetry about poetry begins to emerge. Right. Um, So I'd say those are the three things that, that have stood out to me. I'm sure there are others, but I'm sure someone reading will be able to, to note it. Um, Oh, I really like that. I think I noticed along with that, and maybe this is just a different way of saying that, that this is a collection of poets represented in this, in this anthology that um, have like a lot of hope for the world, like a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of willingness, you know, there's plenty of depressing, but there's plenty of poets who write about the loss of hope. And, and, and this is certainly not a collection of poets that shy away from hard things from, from the experience of, of suffering, but there's not a despairing one among them, right? There's not, there's, there's just a sense of an invitation into a deeper life and into a more hopeful life and into, you know, finding threads of, of beauty and, um, and transcendence. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a big difference between desperation and despair. And I think a lot of poetry focuses on the concept or is, is about desperation, but poetry that's about despair rarely lasts. Mm-hmm. Um, it rarely is. Um, it's also really worth memorizing. Not be, like there's formal reasons why it's worth memorizing, but it can be difficult, you know, to difficult material to keep in your head. But I think desperation is a different thing and can lead to some great poetry. I think a lot of great poetry comes from a sort of desperation, either to get the words on the page or to express some experience you're going through. Hmm. Right. Well, and there's an energy to a desperate poem. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. It's like yeah. clamoring, right? I like <laughs> Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem in here actually is kind of like that to me. Hmm. Um, it's a very famous poem. Um, let's see if I can find it. Because even when you read it from the very beginning, it would be under D, wouldn't it? <laughs> Going the wrong way here. Page forty-two. Yeah, it's called called sympathy, and uh, you know, like that first line. I know what the caged bird feels, alas. And there's a sort of the poem has this thread of desperation through it, um, and also a sort of cry for empathy. Hmm. But it's not a It's not. It's desperate, but not full of despair. I think it's a good example of that sort of thing. Hmm. Oh, I like that. So final question, really important Uh question, and there is Uh a right answer. 
Who is your favorite contributor to the project and why is it Heidi White? Because <laughs> you wrote the most. <laughs> I did write the most. That's not wrong. You, you wrote you, the most. Well, you I mean, okay, yeah. other than me. Yeah. You wrote them. You wrote a, uh, you wrote, was it four? Four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you helped you. Then you also, um, put some eyes on my essays. I edited everybody else's, but then I needed someone to look at mine because you can never edit your own writing. So so you helped, you helped, you know, put some eyeballs on my writing and keep me from being embarrassing myself. I'm so glad you didn't, you just, you didn't say you're not my favorite contributor. Although that might be true, but thank you for not saying it. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say that on the podcast you're hosting. (laughs) I would just write a poem about that and then, put it in a, a glass bottle or something and throw it out to sea. No, you so should send one it to me for me to it. edit it. And then, so. <laughs> yeah. Like in Frankenstein where he edits the guy's reflections to make him look better or something. Right. Um, all right. Well, I guess we have to wrap this up, but David, thank you so much. Uh, not only for being here, but for, for the book, um, from what I'm seeing, it's, it's unique. Um, and it will help a lot of people go further up and further into their particular experience with poetry. Thank you. Um, I hope so. so thank you for that. And yeah. listeners, you can order your copy of 30 Poems to Memorize Before You Die. Is that not the right title? <laughs> no, it's not the right title. Come on. <laughs> 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late uh, from the Circe Institute at www.circeinstitute.org. And while you're there, browse around. Uh, It's well into school year planning season. The Circe Institute offers a myriad of great resources for your school and homeschool needs. And don't forget to subscribe to Form a Journal and our online Form a Review, which offers media reviews, interviews, retrospectives, book recommendations, and essays sent straight to your inbox weekly. And you can find us at www.formajournal.substack.com. You can also just go to formajournal.com and it'll direct you. Um, Also, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, like, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast. It makes a big impact on our platform and we surely appreciate it and thank you for tuning in uh, and we'll catch you next time on the forma podcast where we will continue to explore the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com